Good morning. Or good evening, I mean. Ah, let there be light. Good morning. Yeah, cheerier now. <clears throat> I do love that song we just sang, Hallelujah. Anything with Hallelujah makes me smile. Don't forget, Hallelujah. 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 That's Hebrew. You are, you are speaking Hebrew. Hallelujah. Praise Yah. Hallelujah. Praise Yah. And that would be the second person plural. Hallelujah. Ye all praise Yah. Yah is short for Yahweh, the Lord, which we translate the Lord. So remember that. It makes it kind of special when you, uh, when you sing anything with hallelujah, hallelujah. Hey, before we look, hey, what are we going to look at this morning? Strain a gnat, swallow a camel. I've really been waiting for this one. <clears throat> it's in Matthew 23, 24. In just a moment, we're going to read verses 23 and 24 of Matthew 23. But I wanted to kind of explain Matthew chapter 23, because in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus begins in verse 1 speaking to all of the people that have just kind of gathered around in addition to his own disciples. And he begins to speak to them about the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and their scribes, or the Pharisaic scribes. And the Pharisees were the dominant party, religious party, like... Sometimes you'll hear the expression evangelicals. Have you ever heard that? Eva, the evangelicals. Well, that kind of identifies people by a set group of beliefs. And the Pharisees were just such a group. They were kind of like the evangelicals of their day. Uh, they really believed in Bible study, which was a good thing. You know, they wanted people in the Word. And they were in the Word. In fact, they made a lot of being in the Word. And those scribes that are mentioned, well, they're specialists in helping people to understand what God wants them to do. So that's a good thing. And Jesus, in verse 3, starts off by kind of praising them. You know, I want to... Give a big nod, a wink, uh, a shout-out to the Pharisees for putting an emphasis on God's Word and really being concerned about what God's Word means. But he says, in effect, I just wish they would do something with God's Word, not only in intention, but in action. 
I wish it would show up in their lives. They talk about it a lot, but I don't see the evidence of all that study, all that knowledge. I don't see it in their lives. That's what, that's what almost all of this chapter is built upon. And why does he focus so much on the Pharisees and scribes? Well, I already mentioned, they're the ruling... I mean, everybody who's anybody uh, kind of follows the Pharisees and the scribes and their religious ways. I mean, that's what is so strong in the synagogue, in the, you know, kind of the equivalent of church. So, I want us to be aware of that. In fact, he uses two words to describe the Pharisees and scribes. And the first word occurs seven times just, uh, well, seven times in Matthew. And that's the word hypocrite. He calls them hypocrites. And the word for hypocrite, when you say hypocrite, um, you're pretty much pronouncing Greek. The Greek word that we vocalize as hypocrite means actor, an actor in the theater. And actors, whether it be tragedy or comedy, would wear a mask. And that's where, really where we get our idea for hypocrite because when we think of someone as being hypocritical or we say, you're a hypocrite, we say, you're playing at something that you really aren't yourself. You're, pray, you're playing a role. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to these religious leaders, these influential leaders, he says, you're, you're playing a role here that isn't true of your whole life. And it's like a mask hiding the real you. Incongruent or unequal with who you really are. The second word that he uses for them is the word blind. Blind. Five times he calls them blind. In fact, right here in this letter, in verse 24, in 23, he uses the word hypocrite. In verse 24, he uses the word blind. He says, you are blind guides. Blind guides. And maybe you've been in a foreign country, or perhaps you were in a place where you were totally unacquainted with the territory, and you contracted to have somebody be a guide for you. Maybe you went to a museum and a docent showed you around and explained things about all the works of art. That's a guide. But what if the guide couldn't see? Then it wouldn't really be able to show you where you need to go and take you where you need to go and understand what you need to understand. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites and blind guides. Let's uh, read it together. Chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, and the word tithe means to give a part. What, how much is a part? One-tenth. So if you have ten fingers, you give one. That's a tenth. You tithe, that's a tenth. You tithe, he says, on mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. If Jesus spoke Aramaic, which was... uh, the word on the streets, you know, I mean, that was the native language, or the lingua franca. Um, if Jesus smote, spoke Aramaic, and all scholars believe he did, there's a word play here in verse 24, because nat could be pronounced two ways. We have two evidence, evidence of two ways. And one would be kamla, kamla for nat. And you know what the Aramaic word for Camel would be gamla. So you strain a kamla and you swallow a gamla. Jesus had a sense of humor. But actually, the Pharisees were so fastidious, so careful. You see, what, what are these little things that we read about in chapter 23 that take precedence over the big things? Well, he says mint, dill, and cumin. Those are little things, really, because, I mean, I know we've had a garden in the past. We used to have a pretty big garden. And Shelly has planted seasonings, you know? I mean, she's planted herbs in the garden. And it just takes up a little space because you don't need that much. You know, when you, when you buy herbs, they sit in a little can. They're, go to your spice cabinet. They're in little bottles and little cans. And some of them are there for years. I think we still have some cans from grandmother's house. My grandmother, who was born in 1900. You just don't use that many. Because it takes a little to season a lot. And yet they tithe on that. They have a little garden. There's Levitical law for this in in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. In fact, we're told that uh, on every harvest, you are to give first fruits and a tithe. But do you realize that even the rabbis, and this is more tradition, it's not in the Bible, but they hand down legislation that exempts you from having to tithe on herbs, on spices. I mean, that's so little. 
But look at how fastidious, how scrupulous the Pharisees and scribes are, that they tithe even on what they don't have to. Glory be, these people are wonderful. That's what Jesus is drawing our attention to. He says, look at how fastidious, how fussily. Is that a word? I like it, though. (laughs) How fussy you are over (laughs) such little things. You tithe even on them. But you overlook justice. You overlook mercy, and you overlook faith or faithfulness. Jesus wants his followers to be people of a different kind. In, throughout this chapter, Jesus is telling, remember I said, he didn't go and deliver this message to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's using them as an example. Don't be like that. Now, naturally, this comes with adolescence. I think every adolescent, just about everyone, they come to a natural point in life when they themselves say, I'm not going to be like mom and dad. I'm not going to be like that. But here Jesus is using the Pharisees and the scribes to motivate those who would follow him with the difference between them. The difference between him and the religious leaders. And so it is, we are to be different. In fact, because he doesn't want us to be so caught up in the scrupulousness of what the Pharisees take great pride in, he encourages you and me, his followers, his listeners, to major on the majors. And the majors that he brings up here are three, justice, mercy, and faith, or faithfulness. When I was uh, in the Bay Area, um, I used to get the newspaper every morning. Uh, do you all read the newspaper? <laughs> Go out onto. How many of you still read a newsprint newspaper? Yeah, a few of you. All right. Old school. I, I do like uh, the newspaper. I used to read it every morning, love to read it, and especially the sporting page. When we were in Bay Area, it was the San Francisco Chronicle, the Sporting Green, and several columnists read faith- faithfully every day. One of the columnists that I always read, and, and we, you know, we have new columnists today. This is an old one, but back in the day, it was called Dear Abby. And people would write Abby for advice, and Abby would reply, but she would post their letters. And this letter I have saved. Dear Abby, I live in a small suburb of St. Paul, 
Minnesota. As a child, my family was Lutheran, but after I married, I started to go to the Catholic church with my husband. Abby, I've seen a lot in church, but today took the cake. Sitting in front of us was a woman with two small children in their pajamas. I've been upset when I see people in church in blue jeans. Or shorts. Because I was taught that it was a sign of respect to dress up for church. I feel uncomfortable around all these slobs. Needless to say, I don't really care to go to church anymore. I've talked to my husband about going to another church, but he thinks I'm being ridiculous. Are there other people who think going to church like this is okay, or am I being a prig? Signed, Frosted in Forest Lake. What's a prig? I've heard of Porky Prig, Three Little Prigs, and Miss Priggy, but what is a prig? Well, the dictionary defines a prig as a self-righteously moralistic person who behaves as if superior to others. Prigs are fussy about trivialities, pointlessly precise in requiring conformity. Prigs tend to be uptight and aren't much fun to be around. In the 18th century, prig meant precise in speech and in manners and implied someone who was deeply religious. In short, to put it in my own words, a prig majors on minors, on little things, on minutiae or minutiae, depending on how you say it. Prigs exalt policy over people. And it may be important to recall your attention to the fact that policies are written to serve people. At worst, prigs are bureaucratic fault finders, stuffy spoil sports, nitpickers. If you don't know what a nitpicker is, It's kind of like a baboon who grooms its infant. If it's respect that this woman 
frosted in Forest Lake, uh, if it's respect for God or for church, that is her major concern, then why would, because it certainly seems blind and hypocritic to add, I don't really care to go to church anymore. But isn't that how we can, as they say, um, miss the forest for the trees? Or, as Jesus put it, strain a gnat and swallow a camel? That's why we need to major on the majors and not get the minors confused with the majors or the majors confused with the minors. By the way, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, would strain that little bug, that little gnat. It could be a mosquito. It could be what we call a gnat, something small like that. You see, as they would pour the wine into the water of their cup, they would put over the cup some muslin cloth, and they would pour the wine to mix it with the water through the muslin to catch any bugs. Because if you swallow a dead bug, that's because then the wine is unclean and you have to throw it out because you can't touch or have anything to do with what is unclean. And the gnat is the smallest creature in Palestine in everyday life. In other words, you don't, you don't go to a zoo to see a gnat. And in the same way, the largest animal in Palestine in everyday life is a camel. You don't go to a zoo to see a camel. I have to admit, when we went to the Holy Land back in 2010, the first time I saw a camel just, you know, out there walking around. That was an amazing thing. It's in its natural habitat. Funny what tickles us sometimes, isn't it? But what Jesus is saying is exactly what we mean when we say, wow, you're, you're missing what's really important here. We, we do that in our own homes with each other. We may not be as witty as Jesus. We may not be able to use plays on words, but we often see it in others. You're missing the point. You're putting your emphasis on the wrong things. You're not seeing my heart here. You're being legalistic. You're missing the spirit of what I'm trying to do or what I'm... This is really natural stuff for us, this major on the majors. But what Jesus actually draws our attention to are three things, justice, mercy, and faith. And justice, mercy, and faith are important topics in the Old Testament. Some passages are very notable, but one passage includes all three, and that's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You know, if you were to 
Be humbled before the Lord. I put it that way because, just like me, I know that we have to be in the right frame of mind. We have to have a certain disposition. If Shelley and I are having a disagreement, that's not the time, you know? It's hard for me to want to pray right then. It's hard for me to want to let the Lord in and shape my thinking in my heart, change my mind, affect my attitude, right? Because we kind of get the jump on God, and it's, it's all about me first, Even when we're sitting here, sometimes it's hard for the Lord to kind of break through and say, hey, I want to speak to your heart. In the Old and the New Testament, in Micah and in Matthew, Micah 6, 8, Matthew 23, 13, uh, 23 and 24, it's all about attitude, right attitude. More than right ceremony, right ritual. They're wanting to be so scrupulous, so meticulous. You can't fault them. They go beyond the law to tithe on spices. But they miss justice, mercy, and faith. So what would God have us do if we were in that right place, if we had that right attitude, if we could just kind of be stripped down, get rid of the pretense of, of our dress, our importance in this world, and just a moment before God, and you were to say, what is most important to you, Lord? What, what could I set before you or bring before you that would touch your heart. And that's exactly the issue in verse 6 of Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Well, he gives us some, some ideas. These these will top your ideas. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? with calves a year old. I mean, that's primo. That's the supreme sacrifice. And, and it's not something you share in. It's a total burnt offering. I mean, you're just, that, that's real sacrifice, isn't it? I don't get anything back. I don't get anything out of it. I bring a fattened or a first calf, and I give it all to the Lord. Surely, surely that is a major thing. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, not ten rams, not just one, not ten, not one hundred, not ten hundred, but thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil. Here's, here, this tops all of those. We're escalating in importance. How about if I give you my firstborn? And that's a very important distinction because if you give your adolescent, that's not the same. 
You gotta give them when they're cuddly and cute. And you waited nine months, mom, to give birth to this beautiful little thing and you just can't get enough of her or him. You can't even be away from them for very long. And God says, I mean, you know, maybe that would please him. Give him your firstborn, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And here's the answer. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, which is chesed, and to walk humbly, halach, with your God. Now let's just back up for a quick minute to do justice. When we look at Dame Justice, she holds in her hand scales and they're balanced. Justice in its fundamental sense is fairness and it so is in the Bible. A tooth for a tooth, right? The lex talia. So we even see that reflected in the golden rule, which is opposite the lex talus. Instead of vengeful, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is fundamental fairness. If somebody ever asks you what is sin, you don't need the Bible to define it. Just ask them to fulfill the golden rule or the second great commandment, the second part of the great commandment. Set your own life as an example. See if you can live up to what you expect of others. That's the standard of justice. Deliberative, equitable justice. In other words, God is saying, you know what's good. Do the right thing. Be fair. Play fair. Share your food. Share your candy. Share your toys. Your friend, your neighbor, they don't have something Give them something. Help them out. Be generous. Be hospitable, we say. These are the things that God asks. Be fair. And the beautiful thing is that when you think about things then, we talked about mint, dill, cumin, herbs. Where did they get their herbs? I describe little jars and cans that I got from grandma that were rusted in her little herb cabinet. But you know where those herbs really come from? They come from the Lord. The calf mentioned here in Micah, the rivers of oil, everything comes from the Lord. It has to be cultivated, it has to be tended, it has to be watered. He gives the sunshine, he provides the water. We even get the seeds from him. We grow them up, and he says, you need to give a tenth of that. Why? Didn't I do it myself? Didn't I go down to the mini-mart, 24 hours open, 
and get my little can of dill or mint? He says, no, you've forgotten where it comes from. It all comes from me. The air you breathe, the sun on your skin, all the beautiful things around you, everything that you count worthy and precious, even the people, it all comes from me. So yeah, he says, do good because even people are a part of your lives that you should care for. Do justice. Do justice. Do justice. Know it and do it. That's what he is saying here in Micah. Chesed. It's often translated loyal love. Think about that for just a minute, the word loyal. Do you have a loyal friend? How many friends do you have? You know, I think it is true. It's hard to have lots of friends because the nature of the definition of friendship is that there's a person here that we have in mind in our life that is there for us, that never fails us, that is generous with us, that is good to us even when we are not good and generous to them. When we marry somebody, we enter into a covenant. It's a contract, but it's more than a contract. In the Bible, a contract is called a covenant because it expresses loyal love. Chesed. I will be there for you. God says, I who have been so generous, who you are my creation, but in all that I've given you, I love you, I care about you. I express to you loyal, faithful love. I want you to show that. That's what's good. It's not so hard. I want you to show to others what I have shown to you. Chesed. And he says, love it. Love chesed. Love chesed, if you like. It's like spelled, many spell it H, a hard H, E-S-E-D. But it's pronounced like a guttural K. It's a beautiful term. It's one of the most important terms. It is the description of God. It's why in the New Testament, John in 1 John can say God is love. It is, in fact, why God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. And when we think of love, we need to understand it is that kind of loyal love. And God says, what's good is loving that love. And the word to love that kind of love is the word in Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then it repeats in the great commandment that very word love that's used in Deuteronomy 6.5. Love your neighbor as yourself. Micah Micah says, love justice, know it and do it, 
but love chesed. And then he says, finally, walk with God. Walk with God. Halach is the Hebrew word walk. Paul uses that very word. He translates it into Greek in the New Testament, and then the NIV turns it into live. If, the, if you're reading out of the New American Standard, you'll find it translated walk. And it does mean conduct your life. What he's saying is, is live with God every day. Do you know that the Pharisees tried to spell out how everybody should live their lives? And you know what it's called? It's called halakha, law, the walk, the way to walk, the details for your walk. But here in Micah, just as Jesus, when he says you should do the more important things that you've neglected, justice, mercy, and faith. But here Micah defines faith as walking with God. But isn't that really what faith is? Living with God, walking with God each and every day, surrendering your will to him, trusting him, Dear Frosted, perhaps the children you saw dressed in pajamas were wearing the best clothing they had. I give the mother credit for not only going to church, but taking her children. At least they were in church. I'm sure the Lord didn't care what they were wearing. You know, that's the message of the prophets. That's the message of Isaiah. That's how Isaiah opens. He says, leave your sacrifices at home. You've got blood on your hands. And I see it. I see your bloody hands. You see, we can't cover that up with clothes when it comes to the Lord. He sees us. We can't wear a mask. We can't be hypocrites with the Lord. We can be hypocrites with one another, but we can't with the Lord. He sees us. He sees it all. Do you remember, you know, we can talk about justice, mercy, and faith, but it's all, it really all begins and ends with the Lord. You'll never want to be just unless you realize that justice, the Lord's justice in Jesus Christ, where God has shown us grace, there's a justice that's more than just legalese. It's a justice that cares about the well-being of other people, that, that cares about them being as well off as we are. That's a part of that justice. And then 
that loyal love that is driven by a God who never gives up on us, who's always generous with us, who never is exhausted by our needs. And therefore, we're always open. I mean, you know, how many times do I forgive my brother? How many times do I help my child? I, I know, I'm not talking as, as a stranger or an alien here. I know that exhaustion. It's like, when are you going to get this? But, but don't let that be your standard because that's wrong. And when that becomes your standard, then you stop living out the gospel. You stop living out the kingdom. You've substituted a human standard for the kingdom of God. My parents did this with me. This week I looked into what are some of the most important teachings, you know, numerically. How many times is it mentioned in the, in the Bible kind of thing? And I didn't have time to document and validate everything that I would have liked to, but on the basis of some very reputable and pretty large agreement. There's about 2,000 verses, and Jesus put a big emphasis on money and material things in his teaching and across the Bible. 2,000 verses, that's a lot. It's 15%. And you know what is an even greater emphasis, and by the way, why is that such a big emphasis? Because it's things and materialism and money that becomes the great idol of our own self-interest and selfishness. But do you know what eclipses that? 3,000 verses on the poor and the homeless. Yeah, it's sobering. God cares about the poor and the homeless. And you know what I was taught? They're homeless, not because they deserve our help, but because they're lazy. They won't work. It's their fault. Never give them a handout. Never help them. And I could justify that. I read some articles this week. One article, Five Ways to Help the Poor and Homeless. Beautiful ideas. Gospel-soaked ideas. And then I got down to the comments, and one of the first comments was, Five Ways to Spread Socialism. Boy, that's a, that's a gospel killer, isn't it? That's a, that's a sweet... You know, care for one another, be generous, be loving, give unto others as God has given unto you. Forgive, be generous, be hospitable. Help that person. It's socialism. That's a killer right there. No more gospel, no more mercy, no more forgiveness, no more generosity. 
We've divided the gospel into political parties and political positions, and that's not right. Major on the majors. Remember what began it all. I remember it. Paul said in Colossians 2.6, as you received him, so live in him. I remember going to church for that first time. The long hair, the earring, the holes in my jeans, the white stretched out kind of dirty t-shirt, and a little old lady. I know you don't know what I'm talking about, but they have silver hair and glasses and wrinkles, and they don't dress hip. And she saw me and could tell I was feeling out of place, and she came up and She said, we are so glad you are here. My name is, what's your name? And she struck up a conversation with me, made me feel comfortable, like I belonged. And that was essential to me coming to Christ. Not being told, look at what you're wearing there. Get your act together. Show some respect for God. You're not worthy. You don't know what's in a person's heart. Is it our place to be judging them, which we do from afar? Let's get close. Let's get small. Let's work on our neighborhood. Let's work on the people that we actually talk to. Let's forget about everything that's going on in social media, which is the devil's new platform for screwing up Christians. And let's get one-on-one with people. And let's love them. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 23 when he says, major on the majors. Love God, love your neighbor. You'll be just fine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. We love you, Lord. You have revealed yourself to us in such beauty. Not just beauty that caters to our senses, but a beauty that we grow into appreciating as we come to know you more and realize what you're calling us to. And then you give us your spirit to empower us and to work within us. And we praise you for this. May we start today in ways this week to love those around us because we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.